in the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Wonder Woman. Batman. Aquaman. And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast. For All Mankind is a read-through show covering DC Comics' classic Super Friends series, which ran from 47 issues from 1976 to 1981. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, and joining me this episode is my super friend, actually super friends, Chris Franklin, back again for his third straight appearance. Hi, Chris. Hello. And joining us for the first time in the Hall of Justice is you know him, you sort of love him, the irredeemable Shag. Hi, Shag. Meanwhile, at the irredeemable Shag's headquarters... I'm very excited I, to be here. We're here to talk about Super Friends number nine, Three Ways to Kill a World by Ian e. Nelson, Burwell, Ramona Frayden, and Bob Smith. It is chapter three of this uh, Grax multi-parter where uh, the Super Friends team up with the other members of the Justice League of America plus the nascent Global Guardians, which is why Shag is here. It was on sale September 15th. 1977. Before we get to the issue specifically, Shags, since this is your first appearance on the show, I have to ask you, like, what's your history with the Super Friends comic? I'm guessing you don't have one because this series came and went before you ever got into comics, right? <laughs> that is exactly true. I was not even aware of its existence for a long time because, yeah, I missed the window when it was being published. Then, uh, but, you know, I mean, I would hit comic, I, I would hit the convenience store and maybe pick up something when I was like, maybe a sad sack or whatever as a kid, but I don't even remember seeing this thing. Uh, and so I was not aware of it until many years later. And then really when I, it first became an inkling when you and I started podcasting together and you kept talking about rounded corners, right? Ah, yes. Uh, but uh, so I, for really I've just been following along with the podcast is where my exposure is now. Now I, I just – I will give a quick little background on the cartoon. Uh, I don't – it's weird. I don't remember a time before the Super Friends as a kid. However, looking back, I must not have ever watched before 1977 because every Super Friends memory I have is the Wonder Twins. And I must have never seen any of the early reruns because I used to get in an argument all through middle school with my best friend. He would talk about this Wonder Dog. I'm like, quit making crap up. There was no Wonder Dog. It was a monkey. And we'd have these huge arguments. I'd never even heard of Marvin and Wendy until, I guess, Cartoon Network started rerunning when I was in college. And uh, probably the most important thing for me, Super Friends, is, is of course, that uh, the first time I ever really got exposed to Firestorm was thanks to the Super Friends cartoon. Now, have you read any of these issues outside of this one that we're going to talk about before now? I've sort of skimmed a couple of the backups there where Fire or, I guess, Green Flame appears back when she had some solo backups uh, adventures in there. But that's really about it, other than the issues you've covered. All right. Oh, I didn't even I didn't even read this one for the podcast yet. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's called pulling a rob. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> anyway, so, well, again, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. You claimed this issue really out of the gate as soon as I mentioned the show because of your history with, of course, you do the JLA podcast, and this features the first appearance of Ice or Ice Maiden, and we'll get into her convoluted history uh, later on in the episode. As I mentioned, it's part three of this continued story where Grax has planted bombs all across 
uh, the planet, and the Super Friends have to team up with various members of the Justice League, plus these local heroes, to defeat these bombs. So let's talk about the cover. We've got this uh, sort of, uh, it's like a poster cover of a giant Grax leaning over the horizon, and we've got Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Robin, Aquaman, plus Green Arrow and Hawkman standing by as uh, this new super friend, Ice Maiden, or Ice, or whatever is going to be called, as dismantling the bomb. It's drawn by Ramona Freyden, of course, and inked by Vince Coletta, unfortunately, because, uh, I mean, let, let me start with you, Chris. Like, what do you think of this as a cover? Uh, I think I would love this cover if it was drawn by Freyden and inked by Bob Smith like there the other go. two. Yeah, there but you go. But this looks like it was inked with Vince Coletta's left foot. Um <laughs> It's it's really I mean everything's just he just sucks the life out of it and and yeah I know we're we're jumping on the bash Vince Coletta bandwagon sometimes he doesn't deserve it and does wonderful beautiful work this ain't it this is this is Vince that deserves the the beatings he gets <laughs> yeah the characters the characters are a bit off model um, now it's interesting the Ice Maiden little inset that's it's almost directly a lift from inside the comic i mean they they if you look at it almost exact pose and everything from what's inside so i guess that part's legitimate but it's um out of the three covers from this big story arc it's it's probably the least interesting of the three i think design wise it's great uh but yeah the figures are so stiff and ramona Fraden, her work is not known for its stiffness her work has a, a wonderful fluidity to it and you really don't see any of that here and I, again as chris said it's easy to bash Vince Coletta, uh, and because mostly he deserves it. Uh, but I mean, it does get tiresome to keep kind of saying the same things over and over again. But I can't help it. So yeah, if this thing had been inked by Bob Smith, I think it would have been perfect because he was the he was the perfect inker for Ramona Freiden. But uh, obviously, they probably didn't have a whole lot of time to get this cover done, and that means they gave it to Vince Coletta, and so it's it's like a near miss to me. Well, one thing I do kind of like is actually in the coloring, the the horizon line just below Grax. It just, it, along with the the streaks underneath Super Friends, it looks sort of like a sunset. It's it mm-hmm. just, uh, it's kind of pretty. Yeah, I mean, com- composition wise, it's great. I think it's a great cover. And of course, you're kind of wondering who's this character in the foreground while all the other heroes are standing off just watching her do it. But we'll find who she is in a moment. Um, like I said, this the story is called Three Ways to Kill a World. It was on sale September fifteenth, nineteen seventy seven. And again, as I mentioned, it's by E. Nelson Bridwell. Ramona Freighton and Bob Smith. So the story is from their satellite, the JLA watches other members fan out across the globe to help local heroes defuse Grack's remaining bombs. In Australia, Green Arrow teams up with Paul Hicks. No, wait, I'm sorry. That's a Tasmanian <laughs> devil. The bomb in question is made of white kryptonite, which, if it goes off, will kill all plant life on Earth. Even though the bomb is defended by fearsome creatures, they do manage to defuse it. In the Mid-Atlantic, Aquaman teams up with Denmark's Little Mermaid to dismantle the bomb left inside a cube of air at the bottom of the ocean. Using her flying powers, Little Mermaid gets to the bomb, and Aquaman telepathically instructs her how to render it inert. The last bomb is in Greece, and Wonder Woman and the Greek hero Olympian search a cave defended by robots. After making their way through the robots, they find the secret hideout of a pathetic villain named Colonel Conquest, Turns out he has nothing to do with Grex or his bombs. He was just a random supervillain no one knew about. Back at the satellite, the jailers deduce what with that they went to the wrong continent to find the last bomb. They realize they should have headed for Antarctica. Via the view screen, they find the bomb in a block of ice surrounded by similar monsters. It is rigged to explode if it registers even the slightest temperature change, which leaves out Superman blasting it with his heat vision and possibly Green Lantern's power ring too. They need someone to defuse the bomb who emits zero body heat. Marvin, using the JLA computer, suggests the superheroine Ice Maiden, who is quickly brought to the JLA satellite. 
The Vast Jailers then head to Antarctica to fight off the monsters while Ice Maiden handles the bomb. Back on the satellite, the Wonder Twins and Wendy and Marvin are attacked by Grax, who is snuck onto the satellite. But the teen heroes team up and subdue him, with Wonder Dog chomping on his leg for good measure. After Ice Maiden dismantles the bomb, the Jailers beam back to the JLA satellite. When they find Grax has been dealt with, the Super Friends say Wendy and Marvin have officially graduated to full superhero status. The kids are thrilled, but decide they want to go to college first. But the Super Friends aren't empty nesters for long. Zan and Janus say they want to learn to be heroes like Wendy and Marvin did. The Super Friends agree, and everyone wishes Wendy and Marvin good luck in their new lives. So, Chris, I know you're happy because we're getting rid of Marvin. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I hate to see this version of Marvin go. I like comic book Marvin. I can't stand (laughs) animated Marvin, so... Overall, what did you think of this as the conclusion to this three-parter? Uh, I thought it was great. Um, you know, I, it, it got you more of that uh, that feel of uh, the uh, JLA-JSA crossover, and uh, it was great to, you know, we meet uh, some new heroes, and, uh, uh, you know, I, there, there's some there's some moments in this that, that we'll get to, I, I guess, uh, you know, uh, as we go through the story, but there's a couple of moments in here that uh, probably scarred kids for life uh, <laughs> when, they, when they they read it. But uh, uh, but yeah, I, I thought it was uh, it, it's a great uh, it's it's a great ending to the story. All right, Shag, what did you think about this? Well, as a story, it feels very reminiscent of the er, to at least to me to the early Justice League issues. You know, the you know, Gardner Fox, Mike Sikowski kind of stuff. It, it feels to me, like a reminiscent of that. However, that's not to say that's a bad thing. It was still super fun. I, I kind of see what you're saying, Chris, With uh, and you guys have said in previous episodes, about the JSA team-up sort of style. Except it, it, I love these opportunities to introduce new characters. I love it when they introduce a character who stands side-by-side with Wonder Woman, you know, as a, a, you know, this hero of Greece who's just as worthwhile as Wonder Woman. I love that idea that they, they introduce these characters, which is so much fun. So, uh, all right, we'll go through the, 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 the chapters as we go through here. Uh, so the first thing is uh, the first section is green arrow with tasmanian devil and tasmanian devil um i think he is all depends on how you draw tasmanian devil i think ramon afraid makes him look a little goofy here with his big ears but uh i think there's obviously we've seen him make later on later appearances in dc universe he's actually a pretty cool looking character and he's got a cool power set and i don't know i think he's like one of the cooler of the global guardians it kind of looks like a furry venom here in some panels. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're not wrong about the coolness. I mean, I love the fact that he, he just looks like a furry dude, but that big white T really contrasts with it. It looks great. You know, the, the growing power is really, really nice. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, this is jumping further ahead, but I, I read an Infinity Inc. issue the other night where he arm wrestles Nuclon, and they both just keep getting bigger. <laughs> and so, like that, that it's a neat way his power works. So I enjoy the character. the The language continues throughout the, as you and Chris have pointed out in the previous issues. You know, everything's fair dinkum, and I was waiting for him to say throw a shrimp on the Barbie or something. Uh, so the, the the stereotypical lingo is pretty hard to get through. Now, just since we're talking about this particular chapter, I realize the, the way these setups work. As we said, the JLA JSA sort of team ups. But I'm sitting here watching Superman, Green Lantern sitting around at the satellite having a soda watching the entire fate of the world fall upon, you know, a guy who shoots some arrows and a guy who says fair dinkum. And they're like, oh, I hope they pull it off. It's just like, really? Yeah, it'd it, it been a little bit better if they were all just doing it simultaneously, I guess. But then they wouldn't, you wouldn't get the commentary and 
uh, yeah, you wouldn't get the depressing panels of, uh, you know, dogs suffocating. Uh, that, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, good God. I mean, it shows all these people suffocating because of the lack of oxygen. And, and uh, it shows the one dog down and the other dog sniffing. Like, I'm like, oh, my God. That's, I mean, oh, that's just oh. Rover, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. This, this is a code-approved comic. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't get into it into the into the synopsis, uh, but yeah, there's a point where Superman talks to Wendy and says, "Well, if white if white kryptonite gets released, it won't hurt me, but it will destroy all the plant life on Earth." And they're like, "Of course, well, what what does that mean?" And now we get the Superman cues up this little vid, little YouTube video that he's got uh, showing Wendy what would happen to the Earth if all the plant life died, and it leads to this horrible panel of all the life on earth slowly being suffocated as chris points out including a dog dying i mean and 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 maybe even a baby yeah an infant as well yeah absolutely shows a mom and a baby and the mom's like choking and the baby looks like yeah it's yeah it's rough (laughs) i don't want to break the format here by jumping ahead bit but i mean this happens in almost every chapter you get a science lesson on photosynthesis here you get a science lesson on tectonics later and you get a science lesson on ice caps melting which i thought was really cool to put that in the comic actually i love the science kind of stuff but in each case the computer just happens to have pre-prepared images of the earth freaking dying and they're all available for people to view at their leisure that's pretty twisted man uh, the Justice League has Roland Emmerich on their payroll to make those movies. I, guess. <laughs> I like in the previous panel where the, when we see the the shot of all the dead trees, there's a vulture. Yes, sitting that, in the sitting in the branch. He's, the you know, he's going to eventually. Yeah, he's going to pick the eyeballs out of that family because they're going to die in a moment. Yeah, it's going to happen. <laughs> right. It looks like a panel from The Walking Dead. Yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> pretty, pretty, pretty grim stuff. Uh, I do like you mentioned the. Uh, the Australian patois that has many devils rocking. I like that E. Nelson Birdwell gives us translations at the bottom <laughs> of each panel. That's very nice. I, I, I appreciate that. I wish uh, Waiting for Doom came with that. That would be very handy. Beat me to the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I had the joke in my notes, too. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, no, it's really cool seeing Ramona Fraden draw a green arrow. Uh, she, he looks great here. There's this one shot of him leaning forward. Uh, with this monster attacking, when I mean, he looks terrific. I mean, look, I, every issue that Ramona Freighton draws, I'm going to be waxing her car because we know I love her. But it's just, it's so cool to see her draw somebody other than the five core super friend. So I just, I think he looks greater. Yes, I agree, Shag. It does seem weird that Superman and Green Lantern are just sitting around doing nothing, scaring the hell out of Wendy and Marvin when they could be helping. But <laughs> nevertheless, it's a cool sequence. No, yeah, you're right. All fair. Absolutely fair. All the way around. He does look I fantastic. Heard, I heard Norman Alden's voice since he voiced Green Arrow, too, on the Super Friends the one time he was on there. That's by right, Robin, he did. By Robin Hood's beard. You know, I, I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's when I watched it. In the next chapter, the next section, we've got Aquaman teaming up with Little Mermaid. And again, Little Mermaid seems to be borrowing Al Woman's eyewear. It's that same kind of look uh, that she's got. And we see that her powers is that she does have human legs and that she can turn into a fish person. And during this whole section, we get another very, very doom and gloom scenario, courtesy of Superman and the supercomputer, where we see that the, the how Krypton exploded. Again, it's, it's kind of grim stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's more. But there is po- something positive here because, you know, the fact that it says that uh, Little Mermaid's parents, like one was – from Poseidonus and and they had legs and one was from uh, Tritonus and uh, Tritonus and they had uh, uh, they had the mermaid tail 
and they mated. So there's hope for Superman and Lori Lamaris, I guess. There you go. <laughs> Somebody thought a lot about this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to note that I mean, if you recall, when you did the last issue, you mentioned that there was a strange creator credit to Nick Pascals in saying that he, uh, E. Nelson Bridwell, credited him as some help with the Global Guardians. In this one, they specifically credit Nick Pascals as co-creating Little Mermaid, which I thought was sort of interesting. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure what his contribution was to it. Maybe he liked the legs splitting and not splitting thing. I don't know. They also referred, uh, and Rob, I don't know if you noticed this language in here, that to, um, I can't remember, whichever, her father or her mother, I don't remember, whatever, anyway, as a legged, not Atlantean, but Atlanta, Atlantide, I guess is how you say it. I have no idea how you would say it. I don't think I've ever heard it said uh, Yeah, it's on page alligator. five. Yeah, a legged Atlantide. I guess that's mm-hmm. a mean, instead of saying Atlantean, I just thought that was weird, given that we talk a lot about Aquaman over the years. Yeah, it's the first yeah, time I've seen that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that in a comic before or since. So yeah. she's from Denmark. So uh, does, is she supposed to have like a, you know, Javur type of uh, thing here? Or that, that's not what Denmark people sound like, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's very culturally insensitive, Shaq. Uh, I because I, Fair Dinkum wasn't. <laughs> well, that's true. I do like that. Uh, this is it's, it's not the first time uh, that we've seen this, but I like that Aquaman has telepathic abilities to talk to another human. Uh, that that's that was not something that every writer thought he could do, but here Enosun Brobel gives him that power, which I like a lot because it. Keep, I mean, it's Little Mermaid who does all the bomb stuff, but I like that Aquaman could talk inside her head. That's cool. They would, of course, Jerry Connery would take that and run with it, but uh, that's it's still an early mention of that here. Well, she's also part fish, so maybe that's part of it. But that's I true. was really impressed with here because I was looking. I was like, why does he need her? And then once you find out the bomb's floating amongst this giant square of air, and Aquaman can't fly, right. uh, I, I thought it was a really clever usage of, of mixing the power sets of someone who could swim to get down to the air bubble and then it fly into it. I just it. it really was a clever idea, and I, I really liked the fact that she was willing to help that quickly. She has the phrase, great sharks, which is something Aquaman should say. He should have just take that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's that's cool. I, I do think it's funny, though, that they mix all of this like information about Atlantis in, about it being a, a different kind of continent. You know, They mix it in with the real science that's also in this book, so you know some kid went to school and argued with his teacher about Atlantis being a real continent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. I think we just heard a little more insight into little Chrissy Franklin. (laughs) Uh, So the next section is with Wonder Woman and Olympian. And this, uh, man, okay, I love, as much as, uh, you know, you know that I love the Aquaman section because it's Aquaman. This is probably my favorite part of this book because not only do I love Olympian, I just think he's a cool looking character. I love the gag of this, that there's a supervillain holed up in a mountain somewhere that nobody knows about, and because he, he's just a giant mort. I just thought that was <laughs> such a great gag. And it's, I mean, I don't want to oversell it, but it's always a little sophisticated for what was supposed to be a very young reader's comic to kind of have this villain who's just hanging out of this mountain, and nobody knows about it because he's so lame. I just thought that was hysterical. Yeah, I like that. Plus, he looks like Dick Dastardly, so that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, in a 17-page story, it got three whole pages. So, I mean, that's a decent amount of real estate for, uh, you know, a, a red heron. So I kind of dug that, and I do like Olympian. In fact, I will, I will go on a record here saying – I'll probably regret it later, but uh, Olympian never looked better than he does here. 
because uh, he's had a lot of appearances and they've kind of made him look cooler and more modern. He looks totally boss here. I mean, the the lamb's head or the ram's head on there. He just looks fantastic. I love he's it. Ripped too. He's like Seraph. He is. He's like Hercules size. Well, and, and he is a little bit like Seraph. Because remember, Seraph, they really sort of established all these different powers and where they came from and the connections. And they did the same here. I mean, they really went to a lot of lengths to establish why his powers work and all this stuff. And I thought that was really nice character development. Now, the only thing that did jump out at me, though, I thought it was kind of funny. You know, when Wonder Woman and him are heading towards the cave, they say, this cave is the only thing we found in Europe that has mysteriously appeared in the last few days. They checked out every single spot in Europe, and they know what it looked like three days ago compared to what it looks like now. That's pretty darn impressive. <laughs> they had Google Earth early. That's all. You know, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I, the Olympian, I, I think he is – there's something about him that reminds me of like uh, the Hanna-Barbera superheroes like Mighty Mitor. You know, oh, he's got yeah. that – He's got that kind of look, and I guess because it's in a Super Friends book, and you've got that somewhat Alex Toth kind of connection there. But, but uh, I, you know, because I guess because he says, you know, he's he's got the power of the Argonauts, and he's wearing the golden fleece and all that. It's like it's like, man, they should have done a, a Ray Harryhausen movie with this guy. It'd been awesome. Oh yeah, <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah, I'm sure I said this in our first episode, Chris, but. Along with Seraph, like Olympian looks like he should have been part of that Remco line of toys mm-hmm. with yeah. Warlord and, and uh, Arax, Son of Thunder. He just – he has that – he looks like a He-Man character. I like, I dig this guy. That headgear is is killer. I love it. Yeah, I'm thinking somebody – I'm going to have to try to do a custom Mego of this dude. He looks awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the only appearance of Colonel Conquest too. He never comes back. Oh, dang it. He's gonna be the he's gonna be the big bad guy in DC's next crossover. There, there you go. Exactly. So yeah, I like that. Even in a, a seventeen-page story, that we have time for this red herring throwing in that it's oh, it's not the right uh, that's not the right place for the bomb. So we know oh, it's in Antarctica. Okay, we're gonna go find how we're gonna figure this out. Okay, well we're gonna bring in Ice Maiden, and Ice Maiden unfortunately is not given a very ceremonial debut like she just shows up in the one panel way off in the corner and she's just like a professor like okay yeah i'll help out like okay she gets more to do but she doesn't get like a nice intro panel unfortunately well they it's interesting you know marvin finds her and then they say 30 seconds later she's on the satellite now i i totally get that you know it's teleportation but you gotta find her you gotta ask her she's got to put on her costume she's got to get to a teleport tube. well maybe it's in wherever you are but it's just like wow what if she's like i don't know in the shower or something <laughs> no time no time for this so sure. i thought i thought it was interesting um like if you look at the first panel on page 12 uh her hair looks really normal. She looks like she's got normal long hair, but every other panel we see of her in action, including the cover, her hair looks like a sheet of ice. Yeah. So I guess they're Mm -hmm. trying to insinuate that when she's using her powers, her hair actually transforms to ice back to regular. And I only bring this up because obviously we all know this character from her JLI days. It's just sort of an interesting difference there. I didn't even really notice that, but yeah, uh, that's right. And it does lead to that nice big panel of all the super, well, not all the superheroes, but a big chunk of the super friends fighting the the, the monsters, the Grax monsters, which is cool. You've got Batman, Robin, Hawkman, Hawkgirl, Superman, Green Arrow. Again, why Aquaman isn't there, I don't really know, at least in that panel. And then Iceman goes and runs off to uh, to get the bomb. Uh, so after the big group of superheroes, we go back up to Wendy and Marvin and Wonder Dog and, and up in the, in the Jelly Satellite. And I hate to admit this because it's a kid's comic and I shouldn't feel this way at this age, but like, I was a little confused, like, where is Grax coming from exactly? Yes! He, just sort of, he just sort of appears. I was like, 
Thank you. What, what, where did was he hiding the whole time? Like he just sort of comes out of a wall. I was like, so okay, you guys, do you guys both have that same read on it? Yes, I have the same note. Where, how did Grax get in the satellite? How come they didn't explain it? Yeah, the, the security on the Justice League satellite is very lax. Hawkman, come on, you know, get your Thanagarian technology <laughs> <in> here. <laughs> Damn it, Carter! <laughs> All right, I'm glad to know it wasn't just me. It was just like, what the? Like, he just he's just waiting or something. I don't know. And again, that's that same page where we find another disaster might happen. And what happens if uh, Iceman can't uh, dismantle the bomb? And he takes on the Wonder Twins and Wendy and Marvin. Now it's kind of funny when you think about the, what this issue is setting up, and that it's setting up Wendy and Marvin to be you know gotten rid of and to graduate. And we're bringing in Zan and Jaina. Zan and Jaina get defeated relatively easily. Now, I know the idea is they need to be undergoing training. Mm-hmm. But it, se- it seems weird that if you want to set up that these new characters are the ones you're going to care about, boy, they really got – you know what I mean? They get defeated really easily. Yeah. No, that's fair. But I mean, they, but you, 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 uh, you already set it up. They had to get them out of the way so Marvin and Wendy could show how yeah. awesome they are. I mean, you can see when, when Marvin throws a nice punch. Uh, on page 15, where yes, Wendy grabs does. him by the legs, he's he's doing a classic Superman punch right on Grax's jaw. I like that. It's almost some... Gil Kane-like. <laughs> <laughs> well, that guy's legs aren't up in the air and whatever. Flipping You're not looking up but... his nose. Yeah, yeah we're yeah. not looking up Grax's nose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I like that Wonder Dog bites Grax's leg. And then even when they have him subdued, Marvin's still punching him in the face, which is mm-hmm. great. Oh, yeah. I got comments about that later. Don't okay, worry. all right. <laughs> I, uh, so, I, I did want to say that yeah. uh, I like that... Jaina is turning into animals that are aliens. And I want to say, I either heard you guys mention that in one of the previous episodes or, or I heard somewhere else. Someone was pointing out that at first, Jaina is going to turn into alien animals from other planets. It's later, once she gets used to the Earth, that she starts turning into Earth animals. But at this point, it's alien animals, which I thought was like, wow, someone really thought that out. That's pretty clever. Yeah, she's a form of a falong here, a creature of Exor. We had falong last weekend when barbecue. It was really good. <laughs> So, so then we get back to Ice Maid, and she dismantles the bomb. She gets, she, they, she only gets three more panels. She dismantles the bomb. That should do it. They're like, oh, thanks. Green Arrow calls her Norwegian Blue, and then that's it. So she basically gets like what five panels in this comic. She's on the cover, but she gets five panels, and then she, then she's gone. Uh, yeah, she has a huge presence on the cover. Absolutely. And yet, yeah, barely in here. So I, I do have something I want to mention about this sort of chapter, and this ties into what you guys talked about in some previous episodes. If you look at Ice Maiden's costume, right, it's fairly modest. I mean, everything's covered. Everything's covered pretty much, right? And then you guys mentioned sort of the same thing with Godiva and Owl Woman. They all have sort of modest costumes. And, and, you, and I think the point one of you guys made in the previous episodes was, you know, hey, it's a kid's comic. Of course the girls are going to be, you know, there's not going to be too sexed up. But she's standing in there right next to Wonder Woman, who's in a bathing suit. <laughs> so I don't know that that uh, philosophy stands. I think they could have gone for a little more skin. Just saying. Uh, so then we have this big group thing. I, I love when they when the uh, heroes beam back up. Grax is still on the floor, which is great. They still got him. Then and Wonder Dog is still biting his leg. And then the uh, Super Friends all congratulate Wendy and Marvin for graduating. It does seem weird that they were in training this whole time, and then they finally get the thing they wanted, which is to be superheroes. Then they're like, No, 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 we're going to college first. Like. Well, didn't you guys have that planned already? That seems a little strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, I would assume that was E. Nelson Bridwell. Because I, I, what went through my mind is when they graduated, I was like, huh, how are they going to explain them not graduating to the Super Friends? I mean, or to the Justice League, mm-hmm. right? And that, that must be his backdoor thing. Well, what I wanted to point out, and this ties back into the punching earlier, is you notice about the graduation thing, if you follow the dialogue, it's Robin who, out of the blue... Who, who's not even part of the Justice League. Robin declares that Marvin and Wendy have graduated. 
So I'm thinking he pretty much just wanted the teens out of the way. Like he's like, <laughs> I'm tired. Of I want these guys out of here. You don't want a competition, not realizing it was going to backfire and he gets Zan and Jaina. And if you really think about it, if, if Robin again is declaring they graduate, I guess the final exam is just punching an alien in the face <laughs> a bunch. See, Marty, Martin didn't know the first thing about basic science, but he can throw a punch. Magnum cum laude. I mean, what? Really? <laughs> yeah, and I, I just I, what I want to know is where did and we might find out in the series did he go to Ivy Rally or Gotham University? That's what I want to know. I mean, at least he didn't go to Hudson University, so Dick doesn't have to put up with him there. You know, cause, <laughs> you know that would have been perfect. Yeah, he'd be hanging out. It's like, hey, can, can I go, can I go over for a ride in your van? You know, because you get the sweet motorcycle in the back of your van. It's like, no, Marvin, you can't go ride my van. That's like, <laughs> I declared you graduated to get you away from me. Wendy <laughs> mentions that she's going to Amazon College on Paradise Island, which, as everybody knows, is totally a party school. <laughs> Lots of toga parties, right? That's right. Yeah, I betcha. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> God. oh my God. That was so bad. It was so, such a dad joke. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Dr. Ange? Uh, he, he doesn't have a, you know, he doesn't have a lock on those. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the issue ends with Wendy and Marvin beaming out, and that's it. And with, uh, with the Wonder Twins and Gleek staying behind. And so it's a big issue. I mean, now, Wendy and Marvin would return. They would come back at Super Friends number 26. But according to Mike's Amazing World, that's it for Wonder Dog. He would not return. This is this is it for him. I mean, I know in post-crisis he has, but basically in pre-crisis, this is it. This is his final appearance in a comic book. Aw. Aw. Right. Which explains where, why I never heard of him. I wonder where, wonder which one he went with. Did he go with Wendy or Marvin? That's a good – yeah. I didn't even think about that. Oh, that's sad. I hope he – Well, they can't go with Wendy because he's a male dog, so he can't set foot on Paradise Island. So. <laughs> I was just thinking that. Why would that dog ever want to go with Marvin? But, yeah, I guess you're right. He's probably – I mean, you know, maybe he went to go find Scooby and Scooby Dumb. So. There you go. That's right. There you go. It's the right you, could join, you could join the Legion of Super Pets or something. Nice. So, all right. So, so Shag, please school us on how this is not really the ice that we are all familiar with in JLI. Oh, well, it is. So here's the deal. So right. Well, I mean, they're confused history, though. Well, I, well, no, I'm I'm getting all that. Don't worry. So Ice Maiden, right from this issue, eventually goes on to join the Justice League International as Ice, right? Well, of course, that's exactly what happens. Until she didn't, because of a lovely retcon. So, so the deal here is the history is you, we meet Ice Maiden here. As you said, she barely even gets any panels. But a couple things to point out. You know, she's got the blue skin. Uh, her hair of ice in a very sort of demure costume. She doesn't appear again for eight more years, and it's, she just appears in the Who's Who entry for the Global Guardians at that point. Like, even though there's all these backups and Super Friends and the Global Guardian characters keep coming back and the Global Guardians were DC Comics presents, she never appeared in any of that. So she shows up in the, the Who's Who entry. Uh, in that Who's Who entry, they redesigned her costume. Her skin's still blue at that point, though, but her hair becomes normal, like, white hair, and she essentially looks just like Ice did when she premiered in the Justice League International. The only real difference was she was wearing a mask, and her skin was still blue, but still, it's basically Ice. And the Who's Who entry, and this is an important part, gave her a secret identity of Sigrid Nansen. It's the only time it was ever mentioned, but they put it in there. Then uh, the Global Guardians appeared in some Infinity Inc. issues, and, and you know, I, uh, Ice Maid was in there. So then, this is where it gets sticky. Justice League International, uh, of course, as we said, Ice joins the team. And what, what basically had happened behind the scenes was they, the JLI book had recently lost Black Canary. So the editor, Andy Helfer, well, his job was to, like, find other characters that Giffen and Dimitez could use. And they were looking for some female characters and uh, ones that had sort of an international appeal. So that's how you end up with Fire and Ice in the book. 
And so they, they bring Ice Maiden in. Again, she looks just like she did in the Who's Who entry, except she doesn't have blue skin, and she's not wearing a mask. You know, who cares? What's the big deal? They, they change her skin from blue to Caucasian flesh color. No big deal. And Giffen and Demetrius were unaware that Who's Who gave her a secret identity of Sigrid Nansen. So they thought they were free and clear to create their own origin. So they gave her the name Tora Olaf's daughter, which we all know, Tora, of course. And, you know, again, they changed her secret identity, and they lost the blue skin tone. Who cares, right? It's post-crisis anyway, so why not? So as far as we're all concerned, Ice Maiden from the Super Friends joined the JLI. In fact, the, you know, I don't know if you've heard of it, Rob. There's a comic called Who's Who, and uh, they did these loose-leaf ones in the 90s, which I know you wouldn't know anything about. Uh, yeah, I never heard of those. So there is a page for Ice drawn by, uh, I believe it's, wasn't it Adam Hughes, I think? Anyways, beautiful. And um, on there, it lists the first appearance of Ice as Super Friends number 9 and creator credits of E. Nelson Bridwell and Ramona Fraden. All makes perfect sense, right? Well... So years later, after the Giffen Demetrius era, uh, DC decided to kill Ice, kills our beloved Torah, in a big crossover. Very sad. And pretty much foolish, actually, too. But then, uh, a few years later, in 1995, another writer of Justice League comes along, and he noted the differences between the Super Friends version of Ice Maiden, you know, the blue skin and the, the name Sigurd Nansen, and compared that to the Justice League version, Torah. So they decided to use this continuity mistake, this gaffe, to their benefit. So they actually retconned that the blue-skinned Ice Maiden, Sigurd Nansen, and our beloved Ice, Tora Fala's daughter, were actually two different people that both served in the Global Guardians at different points. Ice oh, Maiden wow. one. Oh, my God. I know. Ice Maiden 1 is Sigrid, and Ice Maiden 2 is Tora. And they used this opportunity to bring the blue-skinned version back, and she actually joined the JLA for a while. So now, due to this retcon, the creator credits have actually changed. Ice, uh, that we know, Tora, is now credited as being created by Giffen and Demetrius, whereas the blue skin Ice Maiden is now credited uh, to E. Nelson Bridwell and Ramona Fraden. So it's sort of interesting. Like, it was the same character for a number of years until a retcon changed it, so now there's two of them. That is – wow. That's a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it, but it's, uh, it, it all kind of makes sense when you follow it. Anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, all right. Well, thank you very much for that information. I thought it wasn't confusing, but anything from the 90s and Rob just gets all... all uh, yeah, I just tune out at that point. Yep. Chris, could you follow that? I don't know. Am I the only I, one? I kind of I, I knew that. Uh, I can't remember where I found that out, but uh, I remember... I think I, I must have saw both of them listed. It might have been in one of those DC encyclopedias or something, oh, yeah. uh, those DK books or something. And uh, so did the Sigrid version, did she survive after Tora came back? Are they both... Well, I know that that DC universe doesn't exist, but did they coexist for a while again? You do not want to know the nasty, disgusting way they killed off Sigurd. You don't want to know anything about it. Okay, mm. yeah, I probably yeah. don't. Just, yeah, just move on. Is anyway, it uh, by Superboy Prime, I don't know, but <laughs> even even worse. Oh man, okay, <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you know, it's interesting though because like a lot of fans who come new to the JLI. To them, they were always two different characters. They have no idea that Ice was supposed to be the same version, and, and, and we have to, you know, us old school folks have to educate them, go like, no, we, she really was from Super Friends originally. All right. Well, thank you, Shag, for that information. So uh, before we wrap up our talk on this, uh, this issue, I want to ask each one of you, we talk about who, who, who's the best friend, which character you think for this issue came off the best. So Shag, since you're new to the show, why don't we start with you? See, I'm struggling because I actually have two nominations. Am I allowed to do that or not? No. Ah. <laughs> fine. Well, you're getting ciscoid level with rules here, Rob. I mean, I, wow. Fine. <laughs> I was going to nominate both Little Mermaid and Ice Maiden, uh, but I guess I'm not. 
So <laughs> I will nominate Ice Maiden because she showed up in 30 seconds, <laughs> responded in 30 seconds to the Justice League, uh, not even knowing who any of these people are, responded out of the blue and risked everything to help save the world. So I will give it to uh, Ice Maiden. Little Mermaid was going to get it for the same reason, but apparently I'm not allowed to mention that. <laughs> It's, I'm sorry. These are the rules of the, the Super Friend show. So, all right. So, <laughs> okay, we, know, we know Batman loves his rules in the Justice League, so that's fair. That's right. So, all right, Chris, uh, who's your nominee? Well, since I gave it to Wendy and Marvin in the first uh, the first episode we did, I, I'm not going to give it to them because they already got it. So I'm going to give it to the Olympian because he's just boss and <laughs> uh, because they – you know, he's got all these cool powers and I, I just like – I just wish there was an Olympian series, uh, or at least a series of backups with him. So, yeah, I'm going to give it to him. That seems fair. I was almost going to give it to Marvin as well because he really does kick Rax's ass a lot, <laughs> and I, I like that a lot. But, I mean, I just thought Olympian was such a cool character. I think his power set is cool, and I like the, the – like you said, with the Ray Harryhausen connection would be really cool, and his outfit is great. So I he's one of the ones I would have wanted to see a lot more of. So I'm going to give it to uh, Olympian. So, again, I think he just comes off the best of the best friends here in, in this group. And it's said, it's uh, I, uh, I, I could see why – uh, DC thought there was more to do with the Global Guardians because, good lord, I mean uh, Bridwell and Frey had come up with a lot of cool concepts in just three issues of Super Friends. They create, what, like nine new characters? It's amazing. Now, let's be clear. DC does not think there's more to do with the Global Guardians. Well, e. Nelson did. Bridwell thinks there's more to do with the Global well, Guardians. okay. All right. But they <laughs> continued on, though. I mean, that's what I mean generally. Uh, they mm, Not going. by much. <laughs> All right. Okay. Maybe not. So, Okay. So overall, I mean, Chris, you were here for the first two parts. I mean, what do you think of this as a as a three parter? As a you know, certainly the biggest story Supervents has done today. What do you think of it uh, in total? I, you know, as far as I know, this is the is this like the only like big epic three part story they ever did in the comic? I, it, I, I I didn't I didn't go through them all. I don't think there's another three part. There's two parters, but not. I don't think there's any more three parters. Yeah, the, I mean, this really does. It feels like you know. Uh, I know Bridwell did contribute to at least one of the the JLA JSA crossovers. I think the 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 one with the Earth S, uh, with the Shazam, yes. with all the the Fawcett char- characters that they honestly didn't have the rights to, but they used them anyway at the time, uh, which is <laughs> kind of interesting. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he contributed to that. But it, it just it feels like that big epic summer. Oh wow, it's the JLA JSA crossover, but at this time it's with the entire Justice League and. And with the the not quite named yet Global Guardians, so yeah, I mean it does. I mean it just uh, it well. There's a reason why this this three part story is in that trade paperback from a few you know from about ten fifteen years ago or however long it's been now, maybe twenty years ago. Uh, so you know there's a reason they reprinted it there because it's just it's got that it's you know this would. This would have made a great treasury, Rob. You know, I sure would yeah. have. Ah, hey, ah. Pre- preaching to the converted over here, but yeah, you get the most bang for your buck in this story that you get all these new characters plus JLAers plus the Super Friends plus a change for the book. You know, you get right, new characters yeah. coming in. So I mean, he really crammed. I mean, think about it. This this three part storyline is only uh, fifty one pages long. Seventeen pages times three. Hmm. Uh, and yet, if my math is right, it may not be. Uh, but I mean, think about that. Think of how much he gets done in 51 pages and how little would happen nowadays in 51 pages. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. It, uh, yeah. I, you guys mentioned last time it would be an absolute edition or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, now, you didn't even mention the, there's a whole piece in the back that he wrote up basically explaining about how he got saddled with Marvin and Wendy and he was trying to figure out what to do with them. And then uh, on how you know he brings in Zan and Jaina, he was really excited about that. Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to mention that, and that instead of a letters page, uh, there is this piece by Ian B, and he really kind of lays it on the line and get, is very honest about how, how the book got published and how the Super Friends cartoon went off the air, and then they were going to bring it back, and then DC decided, oh, we should have a series. Like it's it's pretty inside baseball for what again is supposed to be aimed at really small kids, and I like how sort of refreshingly honest it is. It's like a back issue article. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I liked it a lot. So, all right. Well, that's going to do it for Super Friends number nine, the big conclusion of uh, this three-part story. And E. Nelson Burnwell has given us a bunch of new characters to play with. We got a chance for Ramona Freight to draw the Hawks and Green Arrow and Elongated Man, Green Lantern, Flash. It was all very, very exciting. It's really a lot of fun stuff. But now, of course, because Chris is here, we have to do another installment of a very popular segment here on the show for all merch kind, where Chris and I are going to talk about a piece of Super Friends merchandise, and Shag is going to sit in with us. And uh, now Shag, Shag never had this this particular toy that we're going to talk about, but that's okay because neither did Chris or I. In fact, well, I, I don't know anybody that had this thing. Chris, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> what, See, Rob, I, I didn't. I didn't have this one. Uh, I had one of the. I mean, I don't know if you remember the uh, proliferation uh, in this era of all the Mexican knockoffs of this car. I mean, it seemed like everybody had one of these knockoff cars, and you know, this one's the right one because this is official, right on the package. This isn't one of those Mexican knockoffs. Yeah. <laughs> what, we're here, what we're here to talk about, and you can see this image on the website, FrianWaterPodcast.com, is the AHI Super Friends buggy. Although, of course, on the box, it's called Super Friends Official Super Friends Car. And basically what this is, it's a wind-up little toy car, and it's a buggy. And it basically looks like Superman, Batman, Robin, and Aquaman are in a parade. Uh, And you've got Superman and Batman standing in the back with Aquaman driving and Robin riding shotgun. And it's basically just a toy car featuring four of the five Super Friends. And this thing is an incredibly goofy-looking product. I love it because Aquaman is on it, and he didn't appear on a lot of stuff. Normally, you know, it would be Superman, Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman. Um, and the other thing about this item is apparently it is impossible to find for anything less than a fortune. Oh, wow. Uh, it is just incredibly rare. I never had it. Chris never had it. I don't know anyone that had it. The only the base, the best pictures you can find, and I'll put this link in the show notes, is on our pal uh, Brian Heiler's website, Pratt, Plaid Stallions. He has an article about it. And it come the the pictures he has, he has it in the box and stuff. Apparently, it's like thousands of dollars now if you find it oh in this gosh. condition. Yeah, it's incredibly rare. Uh, I mean, Chris, what do you think of this as a piece of merchandise? I, you know, I, I I would guess the reason that it's one of the reasons it's so rare is because AHI was you know the rack toy manufacturer, and this is a. A, a little bit pricier item because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's remote control. I think it's a remote control with the tether on it, you know, the line, but, yep. but, but it's, it, you know, it's probably, well, the price sticker on the one Brian's got is like four ninety nine dollars and 1975, six money. That's pretty expensive, you know, for a rack toy. Uh, so that probably has something to do with it, but I, I, I love the fact that this exists. I mean, I, I love it from the box. I mean, you got, cause you got the redrawn artwork on the box. That's like, Part Alex Toth, part Carmine Infantino, but it's been redrawn. And Batman's like a foot taller than Superman. Yeah. <laughs> Batman's looking beefy. <laughs> yeah, and Superman looks like Superboy by comparison. Mm-hmm. And 
And I, I just love the fact that of all four characters here, who is the least experienced driver? <laughs> because Batman's obviously one of the best drivers because he's got the Batmobile. Robin has been driving the Batmobile since the 40s on that Dick Sprang cover, at least, right? So he knows how to drive. Superman has to drive his Clark Kent. You know, George Reed used to drive his Nash around like he did. Did Aquaman ever even get a license? <laughs> we had that uh, that 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 uh, jet ski thing for yeah, a while. Yeah, the aqua scooter. Yeah, he does got the aqua scooter. Yeah, and and whatever the ship is, he's got in the comic. That's what's it called? The um, oh, I know what dolphin, you're talking about. Yeah, the dolphin thing or something. I can't think of the name the name of it. But yeah, but well, yeah. Are. So Aquaman's like you know for some reason Aquaman is driving, and that's probably why he's got that look on his face that he. He's, <laughs> <laughs> giant like uh what do you call it like, robot chicken you know, bug eyes like oh see i <laughs> looks know, like I, davy from davy and that's Goliath. that's what i was gonna say he looks like he looks like an art cloaky uh, puppet or something yeah that is what he looks like <laughs> but you notice his hands are at his side they're not even on a wheel so really he's not even driving <laughs> and if you think about like you mentioned in a parade rob the least important person in the car in the parade is always the driver everyone else in the car is famous except for the driver so it's still oh, sort yeah of- no absolutely yeah no aquaman's definitely getting the shaft a little bit here but <laughs> i but again i appreciate that he's even in it at all because normally in if you as we'll go through this over the course of the many episodes of for all merch kind normally if the some merchandiser had room for only four characters Chris, you know this. It's always going to be Aquaman who gets the shaft. Always. Mm. Yeah, it's not like the opening of the first season of Super Friends where the four of them are standing together saying Robin. No, Aquaman gets the shaft in the merchandise. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. So just the fact that he's on here at all. And again, this thing is so rare. The only time I ever saw it was in those little ads that they ran in DC Comics for various merchandise. Mm. And they had the little drawing of it. And I was like, boy, I never had that thing. I'd love to have that. I'm imagining, Chris, you pointed out the four ninety nine price tag. If I had ever seen this in the store, I would have annoyed my parents to death to get it for me. So either we never saw it or they saw it and they just, like, pushed my face in the other direction or something. So I wouldn't <laughs> say it because if, if it had the Super Friends that had Aquaman. It's weird, too, that um, it, you mentioned that it's from AHI, who obviously they didn't have – they were a rack toy manufacturer and they did a lot of toy cars. They obviously probably didn't have a lot of experience with Super Friends merch because, like, there's no Super Friends logo on it. It's just like a generic Super Friends. Like, it looks kind of just like a little kitty thing. Like, so I don't think they exactly knew what they were doing, sort of. They didn't have all the material. And, yeah, and you mentioned it's, it is this weird combo of Carmen Infantino and Alex Toth. It has a real thrown-together look to it, but that's that's what I love about it. Yeah, that yeah, go ahead, Shag. No, you go ahead. I was going to be snarky. You go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, the artwork matches a lot of the, the Batman and Spider-Man uh, vehicles that they did around the time, like the motorcycles and the Batmobiles and, you know, with the blue sky and the, the the pink buildings and the clouds. I mean, it looks a whole lot like that. But, yeah, the, usually those had some semblance of a, of a you know, a logo. But the, the artwork was always, like, you know, redrawn and – and not redrawn very well. It's it's got this, but it's got this. Me and Brian Hyler have talked about this before. It's got this great charm of not having this, like you know, this strict style guide. That's that that so many everything now. You would never find a, a official licensed product that looked like this. No, so it's wonderful in its goofiness. I, I love the dune buggy aspect of it. It's just so I don't know. It captures that era so perfectly. Um, and maybe that's just my my nostalgia for the seventies. I don't know. But uh, and I. 
I'm still hung up on the word official all over, which cracks me up. But <laughs> what exactly is with rear up action? I uh, It just sounds dirty. <laughs> I think it's I think it's when I, I'm going to guess. I think it's when if you rev it up the most, it pops the wheels up in the front. Oh, okay. I think, I think that's what that is. That so does that. Batman falls off into his death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Rob, if you didn't shop at Ben Franklin growing up, maybe that's why I never saw this. What's Ben Franklin? I don't even know what that is. Oh, oh. that's what the price sticker says. It says Ben Franklin. It was a um, – I don't know. How would you describe it? I mean we had one in, in my town until just a few years ago dime. actually. It yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what it, it was? Okay. We didn't have those in this area. Yeah, we had a Ben Franklin in town. I didn't notice that it said Ben Franklin, Shaq, but as you did that, it's like, oh, my God. That that was where, when I was a young kid, that's that was where toys were. I mean, they had a dedicated toy department downstairs. You came into the building and went downstairs, and it was like, oh, toy land. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, there were Migos, and, you know, and, I mean, it, it, was, it was fantastic. The whole downstairs was the toy department, and uh, – and later, like, there was one in the college town I went to, but by that point, it was like a craft store. It was, uh, yeah, it had yeah. just become crafts and things like that. So that was kind of strange. And oddly enough, had pets. It had, like, fish and birds and, and crafts. So, oh, uh, but yeah, this is where I got, you know, Ben Frank is where I got all my Ben Cooper Halloween costumes and, all that fun stuff. So I can totally see this on the shelf in a, in a Ben Franklin, which, uh, yeah. And you know, Rob, the doom buggy Shaq brought up the doom buggy. I had that in my notes. I almost forgot. This is where that doom buggy went that Superman got in the coloring book. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. There you go. It's perfect. It makes total sense now. <laughs> That's why, uh, who, who gave, wasn't it Batman who gave that, gave him that or Wonder Woman? He gave him the stone bat. I didn't ever oh, say okay. who gave him the, the dune buggy. I, you oh. know, Aquaman gave him the giant fish and it just, I don't think it said who gave him the dune buggy, but maybe, okay. maybe the kids did. I don't know, but that's, that's, that's where it came from. So. There you go. So, I, I like the, the, the charging unit. If you look at the picture out of the package, again, this is on the Plaid Stallions website. The, the long red cylinder that powers the, the, the wire there, that thing is freaking huge. It's bigger than the car. That must be like, I don't know, 6D batteries to power this thing, man. <laughs> 6D batteries. Come on. <laughs> and the cord's probably like about six inches long. <laughs> so. You've got to like stand like you got to be short like a kid and stand like if you got this as an adult you'd have to be on your knees if you tried to power this thing across the floor. So. I wonder if AHI ever made a Spider Mobile in the same with the same thing. Oh. It could have had Spider Man and I don't know who I don't, I don't know who the other characters would be drawing it, but I mean you could have had races between your Super Friends car and your Spider Buggy. What could have been? What could have it, been? If it's the seventies or any indication, they would have the Hulk driving it because there you go. Exactly. For some reason. <laughs> The Hulk had a van. He had a helicopter, and and there is like um, those those uh, those eighties uh, uh, processed plastic like little army men Marvel figures that came later. They they put them out in, with like a jeep or something. And the packaging shows the Hulk driving the jeep with Captain America and Spider Man <laughs> riding shotgun while the Hulk's driving. <laughs> well, he is a Bruce Banner is a doctor, so he's probably got his license. I mean, come on. <laughs> Again, what 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 could have been? So, well, all right, that's going to end uh, this segment of for all merch kind. Again, this is something that uh, if I ever saw on eBay, I would and I could pick it up for anything less than a fortune. I would, but it, it'll probably never be available anything oh, yeah. other less than a, a good jillion dollars. So, so guys, Chris, thank you once again for making three appearances in a row on for all mankind. And Shag, thank you for stopping by. Oh, this was a blast! Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I love the show. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, thank yeah, you very I'll... much. 
Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on and, and let me stay on through the whole storyline and seeing it through to the end. And it was great to to share it with Shag. And uh, I just had a blast. And yes, I too would love to to own this as much as I think it's goofy as hell. I love it. It's so so goofy, goofy, charming. I just love it. <laughs> yeah, you, you heard it here, folks. We need more Patreon money so the guys can buy this thing. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. So, all right, everybody, I'm not going to ask uh, Chris and Jag to plug their shows because wherever you all know where their, sh- their shows are, they're here on the network along with mine. So we're going to take uh, a break. We're going to run some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do some listener feedback. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Doctor Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. And many, many more. Justice League International. Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? And we're back with the part of the show I call Super Friends, and that's where I cover the feedback for the previous episode of the show, which was For All Mankind number 8 with, once again, Chris Franklin. So let's get right to the comments from the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. First up is Matt Soroyce, who says, All Mankind gets to enjoy another fun episode. Ian B's insistence that the comics in cartoon are all one big universe is amazing. I love how he ties it all in, and then grabs you by the lapels, slaps you in the face, and yells it at the top of his lungs, just to be sure you're aware. As for Jack O'Lantern's costume, it wouldn't have been accurate for there to be any orange or pumpkin theme to it. Pumpkins are native to North America and have nothing to do with the Irish legends or history. Had they done a pumpkin theme, some insufferable comic fan with a name like Matt or Soroyce would have likely written in to complain simply so everyone would know how smart he is. Yeah, that sounds super annoying. I hope, I'm, I'm glad that didn't happen, Matt. Thank you. Nick Vector says, I had just listened to the Mountain Comics episode of this issue with Zoom Yukonori the other week as I was re-listening to all of Zoom shows from the network. And it was good to get the additional perspective here from you and Chris. Yeah, thank you, Nick. Uh, I actually had it in my notes that, of course, uh, Zoom and I covered this comic on Mountain Comics. And then I just, as we were doing the episode, I just forgot to mention it. And then I just moved on to other things. So thank you for pointing that out. Yes, this comic I have covered now twice on the network once for mountain comics and once for for all mankind so again thank you for thank you for remembering that gold dragon 71 says i remember that yul brunner anti-smoking ad very well i was a huge fan of the late actor particularly in the king and i which i got to see live before he died 
I will proudly say that while I was never a really big fan of cigarette smoking as a kid, I actually have never smoked because I took Mr. Brenner's advice to heart. Uh, that's what uh, they were hoping for, Gold Dragon, so good, good on you. I do remember that ad, uh, too. It was very, very powerful to see a video of someone who uh, you knew had passed away sort of giving you advice from the grave. It was an incredibly effective ad. I remember it vividly. Uh, he continues on. My first thought in seeing the scene with Black Canary and Thunderlord was, I hope Ollie's not watching the monitors while they're getting cozy. I also noticed a much smaller canary as compared to Thunderlord, who is usually drawn in later comics to be rather on the short side himself. I couldn't find an official height list for Thunderlord, but Black Canary has been listed at 5'5". Five five. Actually, her later Huzu from the Binder format series lists her at 5'4". Maybe she stopped wearing boots with heels. Uh, yeah, we, that's a reason why yeah, Thunderlord should have gotten a listing in Huzu, so we can get that vital information. Uh, Cellar Dweller says that regarding Ian B's methods of making this series Earth One connected, Super Friends number eight was referenced in a Justice League issue. In that issue, Red Tornado was making a reference to breaking the time barrier, and at the bottom of the panel is the blurb in Super Friends number eight. Unfortunately, I can't remember which issue this happens in. I would have liked to have seen the individual battles be more in depth, but that would have required a fourth issue or more pages in the three existing issues, which would have raised the price. Regarding the comments on Owl Woman and whether or not she appeared elsewhere, I was not able to locate her in Crisis Number 12, but I found the following Global Guardians. The Little Mermaid, I suspect, but may be mistaken. The Rising Sun, Jack-O-Lantern, Godiva, Thunderlord. We also see Green Fury and Dr. Mist, who both appear in later issues of Super Friends. Thanks for all the work you do with these. I'm really enjoying them, Chuck. Thank you very much, Chuck. And uh, we have a follow-up here from Isamu Yukonori, uh, son of Zoom, and he says, Red Tornado, referencing himself breaking the time barrier, was in Justice League of America 150 page 21. <laughs> Isamu is his father's son. Uh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Matt Royce then follows up regarding Owl Woman. He says, she's not easy to find, but you can spot Owl Woman in the 24th story page of Crisis number 12. She's in the TV screen behind Lois Lane. It's the panel in the middle of the page. Fantastic, guys. You guys are the best. You find all this information. I still haven't found that issue of Crisis. I don't have it anymore. I thought I did, but I guess it's disappeared in the in the, the mists of time, uh, but uh, I have to find it somewhere because I really uh, now I'm curious about whether uh, how well you can see Owl Woman in that uh, in that picture. Uh, Al Gerding says these are my favorite issues of Super Friends, and I became a huge Global Guardians fan because of them. You're not the only one, Al. Ted Kilvington says, awesome episode, fellas. This was the third comic I ever bought shortly before my ninth birthday, and it definitely left a mark on me. The scene with Batman and Robin and Bushmaster taught me the meaning of VTOL, for example. Vertical takeoff and landing. Uh, <laughs> after reading this comic, I can never forget why anyone would think Red Tornado was one of the weaker members of the JLA. Although now that I think about it, creating winds with a force of 186,000 miles per second was probably not the best way to save the world. I also liked your pronunciation of Tuatara. I once pronounced it differently, and my wife slapped me. All right, so now I have to say, I read that comment when it came in, and I had no idea what Ted was talking about. Then Warthill Terry jumps in, and he just writes, ha, 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 times 20. It took me a moment, but I figured it out. I still didn't know what Ted was talking about, and then I thought about it a little more, and then I think I got it. So thank you, Ted, uh, for introducing that into my lexicon. Not the word, but just the idea that you could mispronounce Tubatara that way. Brian Linton says, I love the Black Canary Thunderlord shipping in this episode. Canary certainly has done and will do a lot worse. And this could have given us an interesting interracial couple with lots of story potential. So sign me up for Team Thunder Canary. Where do the team t-shirts come out on the merch store? <laughs> Pretty soon, Brian. Just, just, just keep maybe for Christmas. Uh, Sean M. Myers, who of course, was on this show. He says, another great episode, another great listen. 
was Clem Robbins, the letterer for this issue, responsible for that horrid Superfins logo on the splash page? It was truly atrocious, and I can't believe that it wasn't mentioned in the episode. I'm not one to dwell on the negative, but I would have spent 16 minutes trashing that monstrosity. Rob didn't have me on this episode, so we wouldn't have to do so much editing. I love the teamers, of course, but wish that they weren't quite so same-samey. Two Lanterns, two Sonic-based characters. I'm always a fan of super oddball team-ups, like as if Martha Kent had teamed up with Etrigan. When Rob was voicing the jack o lanterns dialogue with his brogue, it reminded me of Chief O'Hara, and that made me think that if Roy Thomas ever wrote the character of jack o lantern he probably would have had them be related. Yeah, totally true, uh, Sean. Many people have mentioned the Super Friends Saturday Morning Comics hardcover, and I have to second or third or 87th the recommendation for it. The only thing in the book that I didn't previously own was the nine-page Aqua Tears giveaway with purchase of the Super Friends swim goggles, and I'm still so happy that I bought it. The colors are so rich and beautiful in the books. The only small disappointment I have is that they are not 100% completely faithful reprints. For example, the last dialogue box in issue number eight has a next issue blurb with the last line being on sale the third week in September, but the reprint omits the line. It's a very small detail, and it doesn't really affect anything, but I wish they would have kept it in. Why bother omitting it? Uh, do they believe that people are going to think that they have to buy another book in September to get the final part, even though the next story is right there on the following page? By the way, Thunderlord's parents aren't magnetic-based at all, but believe you me, I sure was attracted to him. Based on how much I was swooning, even how much admiration two straight men could see in him, maybe he does have some charm-based powers of persuasion. He is the Global Guardian I want to read more about. And then Chris, Chris Ranklin follows up. He says, I had that atrocious logo in my notes, Sean, but Rob and I happily digressed elsewhere. And then he follows up with the Thunderlord is the Tom Jones of the Global Guardians. Yeah, possibly. I could see Fire throwing her panties at him. Maybe sometime. I probably shouldn't have said that. Anyway, let's move on. Edo Bosnar says, uh, regarding my mention of Esperanto, uh, when I was talking about the uh, interlac language, he says, Esperanto was developed in the 1880s by L.N. Zamenhof. It never took off like he wanted, but by the early 20th century, it had a small but dedicated number of aficionados who have been published, uh, who have published books, recorded audio dramas, and a occasionally shot movies in the language and still hold annual conferences and other events to this day. I had no idea about that last part, Edo. That's fascinating. And conferences of, in uh, Esperanto. Uh, I think I mentioned in that episode uh, that there is – I did see a movie uh, with William Shatner, a horror movie called – I think it's called Succubus that's all in Esperanto. It truly is a, a wonder to behold. Maybe I'll have to cover that on Film and Water one day. Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog says, Now that the X-Men have their own language on Krakoa, they could call it Esperanto. I'll get me coat. <sighs> Catamentropy uh, seconds my emotion and says, and that's our show, everyone. You've been a wonderful audience. Remember to tip your waitresses. I'm not currently following X-Men, so I don't get the reference, but somehow it's funny anyway. Is it? Is it? Uh, <laughs> and then Nick Vector comes back and he, regarding our merch segment, and he says, I was searching for the Super Friends coloring book mentioned last episode, and in the feedback of this one, I came across a gallery of preliminary art by WWS1 fan. It includes an unused page showing a very uncomfortable use for seaweed, I think. And he provides a link, and again, you, you can follow that link um, off the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, in the uh, comment section. And yeah, you can see a bunch of original art and uh, even a bonus piece that's uh, an incredible find over on that uh, Wonder Woman collector site. It's really cool stuff. Amazing that stuff uh, survives to this point. Uh, Matt Ev says, Owl Woman did appear in some early issues of JLE as a sidekick to Jack and Lantern when he was working for Queen Bee. She also appeared in the Global Guardian stories in the extremely mixed bag known as Justice League Quarterly. I refer you to a podcast whose name I forget elsewhere on this network for more information. Thank you, Matt. Nice dig. Uh, 
<laughs> and then uh, Little Russell Bourbon says, another great Super Friends issue. As many of you know, I'm a huge Reginato fan, so this spotlight on him made me very, very happy. On the other hand, is it just me, or does that scene with Black Canary make anybody else cringe? She's a Justice Leaguer for crying out loud. She shouldn't have to nearly faint because she's so tired. Nobody else in the issue seems tired. I always thought this was a subtle dig against the character. When I was a kid, I used the Global Guardians in fan fiction stories. At the time, they didn't have a name, so I called them the League of Nations. I always liked that name better. Frank Burns would hate you for that, Russell. Um, I, I see what you're saying about Black Canary. I guess my one comment is maybe Ian B threw that in just to make because the, the the whole thing about def- defusing the bombs have to go. They all have to go so fast that it is kind of easy for all the heroes to. To, to undo the bomb, so maybe ENB was just throwing in just an extra little moment of difficulty to make it a little more interesting. I, don't, I can see what you're saying that of all the characters, Black, why does Black Canary be the one who gets exhausted? But I don't, I don't think ENB was digging on the character. I think he loved every superhero ever created in the DC universe. I don't think he disliked anybody. I don't. If he did, I, I've never heard it. He seemed like a relentlessly positive guy. Uh, Ward Hill Terry wraps up uh, our comments and he says, the more I listen to this podcast, the more I regret not buying these issues the first time around. I don't recall seeing this cover, but I would have been tempted by a Red Tornado spotlight back then. Well, look at all the Red Tornado fans. It's uh, pretty amazing. Uh, so that is going to do it for the comments on uh, that episode of For All Mankind, number eight with Chris Franklin. Before we wrap up, I have to thank uh, my guests again, once again, Chris Franklin and the Irredeemable Shag for stopping by and uh, covering this third and final chapter of this huge, huge Super Friends story. It was great to have them both on at the same time of course uh we're always talking super friends over on twitter at for all mankind sf uh you can uh, follow the show on the website which is firewaterpodcast.com you can also subscribe to it on apple Podcasts, spotify and stitcher and then finally if you want to support the fire and water podcast network go to patreon.com slash fw podcast and there you can unlock various rewards one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice so big thanks to patreon supporter chuck dill for his support for uh, for all mankind Kind. Really appreciate it, Chuck. So uh, that is going to do it for this episode for All Mankind. Thanks for listening. Join us next episode when we look at Super Friends number 10, The Monster Menace. NFW-TV Podcast.